Everybody loves the touchdown. Throws to the back of the end zone, and it is by Holmes. The grand slam. Fly ball to center field. Ethier has done it again. It's a grand slam. The buzzer beater. Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? We dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio. Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. Uh, a special podcast for you this week. Rick Buecher, formerly of ESPN, does a great job covering the NBA. Uh, he has left ESPN, as I'm sure you've heard, uh, at the end of 2012. He's got several exciting new things that he's doing. He has his own radio show in San Francisco uh, on 95.7 The Game. He's a sideline reporter for Golden State Warriors basketball games. He's an NBA insider for NBC Sports. And then, most importantly to me, uh, he's my new business partner with our social media and media training firm, Everything is on the Record. We're also doing uh, a great event in New York on May 22nd called the Sports PR Summit. For the first time, we're bringing all of the uh, PR executives from the world of sports together in one place at the MLB Fan Cave in Manhattan in New York City. So uh, really looking forward to that. We've got some exciting things going on. And uh, wanted to catch up with him this week. Been a while since he's joined us on Sports Business Radio. So coming up next, my interview with Rick Buecher. We'll talk NBA. We'll talk about some of the things that we're doing. We'll talk about how the social media has changed the landscape of reporting. That's all coming up next. I want to remind you, visit my Sports Business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. You can become our Facebook friend or follow me on Twitter. Those icons are also on the front page of sportsbusinessradio.com. I'm on Twitter at SB Radio. Coming up next, Rick Buecher. You're listening to Sports Business Radio will be right back. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR will be right back. Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I team with nationally known sports writer and broadcaster Rick Buecher, former Nike PR senior executive Lee Weinstein, and veteran strategic communications executive John Lashway to form media and social media training firm Everything is on the record. The Everything is on the Record team provides a unique blend of strategic PR and journalism expertise to our clients. We have worked in the trenches in corporate boardrooms with CEOs and company spokespeople. We've also worked in newsrooms alongside editors and reporters. Everything is on the Record uses an innovative and unique approach to media training. Through the use of current media and social media examples, tailored specifically for you, we prepare you for how best to relate to the digital media world that exists today. Whether you're meeting with a reporter, sitting at your home computer, or typing on your smartphone, you're on the record. We'll also put you through real-life scenarios where you'd be dealing with a reporter, so when you see the real thing, you'll be well-prepared and comfortable. 
with a goal of enhancing your image, protecting your reputation, and helping you connect with the people who are most important to your brand, we will show you how to develop the skills you need to be successful in a world where everyone has a camera, a recorder, and a desire to make news. For more information on our services and to learn more about our team of communications all-stars, go online to everythingisontherecord.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. You can call us today at 503-701-2215. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is my friend and my new business partner, also uh, radio talk show host, Comcast sideline reporter, and NBC NBA insider Rick Buecher. You can follow him on Twitter at Rick. R-I-C, Buecher, B-U-C-H-E-R. Rick, how are you? Uh, I am fantastic, Brian. So I just named off a bunch of different things that you're doing, but uh, update people on where they can find you because you're wearing a lot of different hats these days. Yes, I am. Um, well, obviously, the, the easiest way to find me is on, on my, uh, my Twitter uh, page, uh, as you said, uh, at R-I-C-B-U-C-H-E-R. Uh, I'm also writing uh, extended uh, tweets that uh, show up at Sulia.com, S-U-L-I-A.com, which I have just basically, uh, for the short term anyway, have converted into my own personal blog space. Uh, it allows me to use the, uh, the following that I have uh, developed on Twitter and uh, with while I'm uh, I'm with Comcast and I have a website there and uh, I'm with NBC and at some point um, I'll be appearing on their website. It really, to me, uh, working through social media and people who are interested in my work, the ability to go to my uh, to my Twitter timeline and if you see something that uh, it interests you, there is now a link on that tweet that goes to uh, the Sulia page, which is where I write uh, longer. And I, I've, uh, it, it, it's, it's worked out well. I wondered, I wondered how it would be received. I wondered whether uh, people would drop off following me as a result. And it, it, and it has not happened. And people have actually uh, I, I've gained more followers, and a lot of people uh, appreciate me doing it. I, I felt I felt like 140 characters on Twitter was such an arbitrary number, and that there are many things that, while I enjoyed the exercise of trying to figure out how to say what I wanted to say in 140 characters, there were times where nuance was lost or something was misinterpreted, and I felt as if, you know what, there should be a way for me to... Uh, to elaborate when the, when the story or the idea or the topic demands it. And this has allow, uh, allowed me to do that. And I've been sensitive to the fact that people do, uh, they do follow on Twitter because they want little bursts. And so when I do go to uh, a longer post, a Sulia post, I try to make certain that it, it's warranted, that I'm not doing it just to take you to Sulia but I'm, I'm doing it because I have information that warrants a longer post. And so far, uh, the reception has been, has been very good. I've been gratified by people saying, hey, you know what, 
I'm not really sold on the whole Sulia thing. That's not why I do Twitter, but that I appreciate what you're doing. And so uh, for that reason, um, I, I'll continue at least until I figure out a, uh, a, a better setup for my my coverage of, uh, of the NBA uh, and, and uh, writing in general. Yeah, whether you recognize it or not, you introduced me to Sulia. I'd never heard of it until I started following your work there. So uh, it is a cool tool that you can use to uh, expand a little bit more if you want to expand upon that 140 characters, as you said. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, look, there's, there's people out there that are, hey, 100, you know, they, they want to insist that I'm following you on Twitter and I just want the burst. I don't want to have to go anyplace else. And I certainly appreciate that. And my thought is you don't have to click on the link. <laughs> you, right. I'm not, I'm not forcing you to do anything. And, uh, and I don't, I also don't try to, I try to be judicious with my Twitter, with my tweets in general. I don't, I don't put out anything that I don't think is has some nugget of information or entertainment or uh, just a, a, a value. Uh, I appreciate anybody who takes the time to, to read what I'm writing, and I want to make it worth your while. I want to make certain that I am giving you something for the time expended. And uh, so it's uh, so, so far it is uh, – it has worked, and uh, I, I just I, I feel like I'm a living experiment in the use of social media, and particularly with the new in the new realm that I'm in, because um, I've really become sort of an independent agent, uh, working in radio. Uh, sometimes I'll link to uh, something that I've had on on radio or a segment I've had on radio. I've had podcasts that I've linked to. Um, I've had uh, uh, TV clips from. Uh, my work for NBC and the, and the various NBA, uh, NBC regional networks where I'm talking to a specific market about something that's going on, Philadelphia or Houston or Chicago or Washington. And, uh, and so it's been, an in, it's been interesting to cultivate followers of Rick Buecher and what I do in covering the NBA uh, mostly and uh, Bay Area sports because of my uh, my radio show and uh, and finding a way to provide that content uh, in those various mediums through one stream that allows people to pick and choose and I suppose ultimately the solution would be to to have a website where all of that is. Uh, displayed and housed, but as of right now, it's um, it's almost a simpler way to go right now. Until until I get to the point where uh, the the it feels like I'm compelled to go that direction. You know, the other part is is wearing those number of hats. I'm a little bit lazy in terms of adding one more thing to the plate, <laughs> like like a like a website that you I don't have enough to do already. Exactly. So, um, you know, but, uh, we'll, 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 we'll see how it goes, but it's been a fascinating, uh, experience just to see that, you know, I look, I worked for ESPN for 14 years and it was a great platform and it allowed me to develop my skills on a multitude of platforms. But as I look at, and you can tell watching sports center or watching shows, they give you the rundown on the side because 
people don't want to have to watch an hour of TV to get to the topics that they want. They want to be able to pick and choose uh, the subjects that they're going to be informed upon, the things that they're going to watch. And so I feel like it's no longer a matter of you need to be on this big, gigantic platform. It actually, in some ways, works against you to be on that big platform that's trying to serve uh, a multitude of, uh, of tastes and appetites because people are used to being able to serve their particular appetite. And once they know where they can be, have, you know, they, your favorite restaurant, once you know where it is, uh, you want to, A, either be able to uh, quickly uh, search and find restaurants like that wherever you are, or you want to be able to go and know when you can go and what you're going to find at your particular restaurant on a given night, rather than I'm just going to go, I'm going to go to the mall, and I am hoping that I'm going to find the restaurant that's going to be serving the food that I want to eat. Yeah, it's interesting. You bring up a good point. We've never had more technology at our disposal than we do right now. So you've got LinkedIn, you've got Twitter, you've got Facebook, you've got Sulia, you've got YouTube. We've all become our, our own mini networks where you can take your work and you can broadcast it out on all those different platforms. You can pick and choose. I want to put this up here and I want to send this out here and I want to send this out across all of my different platforms. But uh, you've been able to do that very successfully. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's worked out, and I, I can't tell you that I knew exactly what this was going to look like, and you in particular are probably conscious of this as, as my business partner in, in, in everything is on the record, is that uh, when I when I left uh, ESPN, and, and at one point, you know, we were talking about me continuing on uh, in a uh, as an independent contractor with them, and uh, it, it got complicated in part because of everything is on the record. Uh, and ultimately, I found that I needed to sort of blaze my own path. And I did that not, you know, I knew I had the radio show. And then the Warriors, when they found out that I was, uh, that I was not going to be continuing with ESPN or I was going to be available, uh, they quickly uh, approached me about, uh, working as a sideline reporter and being in the studio for them. And then that, uh, that led to Comcast, which does the Warriors games and is now uh, has purchased NBC. Uh, they have all their regionals and they were like, well, you know, we'd love to have Rick as an NBA expert to be able to speak to our particular uh, talk shows and our particular market. So every Thursday I spend an hour and, uh, from the Comcast studios in the Bay Area, and I do, you know, five to ten minute hits for five different markets uh, every Thursday, and then they know that, uh, you know, on the trade deadline, uh, I, I did the same for them while I was down in Arizona, uh, uh, doing my radio show from spring training, and then NBC Universal, which is a national, uh, has had me come on uh, a variety of times to talk about uh, uh, national perspective stuff. And I believe that that'll probably expand as as, as NBCU gets their uh, their whole platform and, and format together. Uh, but I didn't, I you know, I didn't anticipate. I didn't have any of this in place. It was more like I'm going to do the radio show. Um, 
I believe in the need in the marketplace for everything is on the record. And uh, and so, and I'm, I assume I'll be doing some TV for somebody or writing for somebody, but uh, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to go off into the wilderness and see what I find. And so now it's really a matter of figuring out how to consolidate these things and find out what is the best use of my time. And I, I'm, I'm only, uh, what, four or five months into this new venture, and I'm anticipating that once the basketball season is over, I'll be able to turn my, my attention and my focus uh, to everything is on the record in a way that uh, uh, that I have been able to um, keep an eye on what we're doing, but not really uh, pursue it and uh, develop uh, the company to the degree that I'd like. Well, there's such a need for it. I sent you some stats earlier today, but uh, you know, the College Sports Information Directors of America were surveyed last fall, and uh, some of the findings, nearly 56% of college institutions don't provide social media training for student-athletes. Only 23% provide social media training for coaches and their athletic staff. And, and we've worked with pro teams. We've worked with uh, college organizations. Mm-hmm. And isn't it amazing how a lot of the young people, they think tweeting is the equivalent of texting. So, yes. But it's broadcast to people that are following you as reporters, people who are following you as fans. And because of the lack of education, then we see uh, crises, PR situations or tweets that get uh, either the individual and or the university or the pro team in hot water. And, you know, one of the things we've said is these are young people. They are going to make mistakes. You're arming them with a a smartphone that they can tweet from at any time, uh, day or night. And if you don't give them some parameters and some training – Chances are they're probably going to uh, have a pitfall at some point. Yeah, I, well, and I, I've said it on the radio show because we uh, we actually have a segment that we've done called Tweet or Delete, and we have uh, and we have a daily show, a daily segment at the end of the show called The Happy Ending, and it's stories about basically you know some of the travails that uh, that people have found themselves in, and I this is what astonishes me. Uh, that you have college students and college athletes in particular who have grand visions of where their athletic talent is going to take them and that they are going to become uh, professionals and they're going to become uh, uh, nationally or internationally known and, and yet they are tweeting as if they're just hanging out with their buddies in the fraternity. And I'm thinking there's a, there's a huge disconnect and a misunderstanding of if you want to operate on the level of being a professional and a, a brand and a national entity, then you need to protect that in the same way that McDonald's or Ford or uh, Lululemon or you, I mean, take your pick of a brand. Uh, you need to be conscious of the image that you are creating through your social media. If you indeed have those, and, and look, you know, in most cases, the vast majority of them 
will never rise to that level. Those those aspirations will will probably not be uh, answered or uh, realized. But for those that for the for the small percentage that can and will, they're already undermining themselves, perhaps unbeknownst to them. And quite honestly, even if it's somebody who's not going to become a professional in a particular sport or become nationally known, uh, as we're both well aware, uh, teams and organizations and businesses are all vetting and monitoring uh, uh, potential employees out there through their social media. And so in, in, in a very significant way, anybody who is on social media is basically sending out a daily script of their resume, whether they're aware of it or not. And that's the thing that I feel like everything on the record, as the, the name of the company says, is to make people aware, look, uh, this can be a fun thing. This can be, this can have a, a, a great reach. This can, as you said, can be sort of your own uh, broadcasting center. But you should understand that with that comes a responsibility that if you want to be able to monetize yourself, if you want to uh, increase your value, as uh, an employee or a brand or an athlete uh, that you have to treat that as your calling card and look at it from the perspective of a prospective employee who is going to read something, is that going to make them more or less interested in hiring you or paying you or having you represent them? If you approach it with that thought, uh, I feel as if a lot of mistakes out there could be could be avoided. And as we both know, uh, so far, uh, the vast majority are not avoiding those mistakes. Rick Buecher is joining me. We're talking about Everything is on the Record. You can find us online at everythingisontherecord.com. We're on Twitter at EIO. TR, a few things that we talk about, uh, you know, number one is, uh, if it's digital, it's permanent. There are sites like TMZ, uh, Deadspin. All they do is monitor tweets and social media 24 seven. They can grab screenshots of things. So just because you delete it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It, it, you know, texts, emails, these are all things that live in the digital realm that are, are permanent. Um, and then when people are tweeting, we talk about how, would you say it at a press conference? If you wouldn't say it at a press conference or to a reporter, you might want to think twice about tweeting it. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges is trying to relay that to some of the young athletes, even some of the coaches that are on Twitter, that uh, you're speaking to a large audience here. This isn't just your friends. Uh, right. Things can be retweeted. They can be screenshot captured and, and put on those sites like deadspin.com and, and others. So uh, you've got a broad reach, and what you say carries a lot of weight. I, and I get that people have been somewhat slow to grasp just the reach and that, you know, you think a direct message is a private message and have to learn the hard way that that can be screen captured and sent out. Uh, uh, I've had that happen to me. And, uh, you know, most of the things, I mean, 
most of the foibles that we try to uh, keep people on guard uh, against, I, I, I've experienced. I mean, I, I when 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 Twitter first started and I first got an account, uh, I, I knew personally that I thought, wow, this there a place like I was with ESPN, a place like that is going to have to put rules in place because this could get out of hand in a hurry when you have you know, hundreds of employees and they're all giving out their personal thoughts and yet they are in the public eye, they're viewed as a representative of ESPN. And so sure enough, when the first, uh, the first uh, set of uh, rules came down, the first memo that outlined how we were supposed to use social media, and it was rather, uh, we, we, no one knew it was coming. It came out of the blue. I, I actually received it while I was on vacation uh, after a long drive uh, to Disneyland, of all places. <laughs> and, uh, and I pull in, and we've been driving all day, and I'm tired, and I see this, and I see this, this whole set of rules about what we can and can't do on, on Twitter. And I'll be honest, you know, I was initially, I was like, I was offended in the way it was worded and what was said. And. I had looked at Twitter <laughs> as a informal way for me to uh, interact with uh, with fans, and this was basically telling me, uh, you know, no, you can't do that. We don't trust you with that. Or if, if, if it's anything that um, the, the line that got me was, if it's anything that uh, is, is associated with your work uh, gathering information with ESPN, you're not allowed to tweet it out. And I'm thinking, well, that's, every, that's, that's everything. Like, what's the point? Right. And so I put out a tweet saying, uh, the hammer has come down, tweet. And I don't know exactly what it means, but I probably will not be able to tweet the same way that I have in the past. And, um, you know, unbeknownst to me, that so just merely doing that violated uh, a policy with ESPN, which is I wasn't even supposed to be discussing the fact that a policy had been established on this <laughs> in, a, in a public forum. And I didn't really, I didn't even think of it that way. Right. Uh, again, you know, under the circumstances, tired, late at night, not thinking uh, about all of the ramifications. And six hours later, uh, my tweet is being utilized by Richard Sandemir of the New York Times in uh, corporate policy when it comes to social media. And I'm like, holy cow. How does this, I mean, it was a mushroom cloud. And, you know, now I'm going to get a call from ESPN uh, PR about, okay, well, you know, what's going on here and how do we handle this? And uh, obviously uh, interfered with, uh, with the family vacation and suddenly made me, you know, anxious about what I had done. And I, I, I didn't, honestly, had not done it with any harm intended for ESPN or anybody else. I felt an obligation to sort of let people know that I, I might not be able to communicate with them, you know, in the same way. And, I, and, and to be perfectly honest, there was, there was probably a little bit of uh, – it was tinged with a little bit of resentment that this had come down the way it was, or I was being restricted the way I was, but I certainly didn't mean it as a, as a shot at, at 
at ESPN. But in any event, I had created this this you know this mini firestorm that now was in the New York Times, and so you know my ability to be able to say to people, look, this is what you're dealing with. You know, it's not worth it. Whatever you think, it's not worth it. It's going to it's it's uh, it's too potentially costly. Uh, it's going to uh, eat up a lot of your time. It could damage your reputation. It could create a lot of problems for you. So you have to be very judicious and cautious about how you utilize this tool. And I, I feel as if having experienced it firsthand on a very real platform gives me the uh, the, the gist uh, and the uh, and the grist of being able to to, to present that to uh, to the people that we talk to. Yeah, I think our approach is we're a more modern media training company. It used to be media trainers sat with you and they told you to sit up straight and look into the camera and uh, right. speak clearly. And you know th- that's kind of the old school way of media training. Now, most of the clients that we work with, they want some of that you know on camera media work, but they also mm-hmm. want you to spend, I'd say, seventy to seventy five percent of your time talking about social media and giving vivid examples of successes and failures on social media. And the scary thing now, Rick, is, you know, look at Derek Rose in the last week. His brother Reggie comes out, and we've seen Michael Vick's brother Marcus come out. You can have family members come out and say things. You're not even making the mistake or saying it on Twitter, but you're guilty by association because someone in your family takes a critical stance with your employer, your team, or someone like that, and now you've got another fire you've got to put out. Yeah, and and you know I I believe in part the key to all that is is it, it only makes it it only underscores the necessity for anyone to make sure that the way they are handling themselves in the public eye uh, is is established to the point where you're going to have those situations you're going to have somebody. Who is connected to you speak out perhaps in, perhaps in an incorrect way, and in the case of Derek uh, with with his brother, Derek has been consistent regardless of what has happened in his devotion to the Chicago Bulls, in his devotion to uh, uh, playing for them, and his devotion to uh, recovering from his. His, his knee injury and surgery. And so when he puts out, then puts out a statement in conjunction with the Chicago Bulls, it, uh, it, 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 it deadens the furor fairly quickly because there's nothing else to hang on uh, Derek that might support that he's thinking the way his brother is. There's nothing out there in the public eye that would suggest that. Now, on the flip side, we take a guy like Dwight Howard, who has repeatedly uh, left himself exposed in the public eye. And when he now says something, it it doesn't carry the same level of authenticity or integrity or trust because there have already been missteps in the past. And that's the danger for anyone. Coming up through college, if anybody thinks that, you know what, I, I took a misstep before I really made it big. Rest assured, 
that if it was a big enough misstep, that it will be retrieved and it will become part of your legacy once you become once you hit the big time. Absolutely, Rick Buecher is joining me. Find him on Twitter at Rick Buecher. Uh, quickly, the Sports PR Summit—that's something we're also teaming on yeah. as part of everything is on the record. And this is something that we've wanted to do for a long time. You've got—you know—I used to work for the Trailblazers, and you've got NBA league meetings. The NFL meets with itself. The Major League Baseball folks meet with themselves. But there's never been anything that allows an NBA person to meet an NFL person and an NFL right. person to meet. Uh, an NCAA person. So the Sports PR Summit that we're putting on May 22nd in New York City, uh, MLB has been gracious enough to uh, agree to host our event at their MLB Fan Cave, which is a fantastic venue, a very unique venue right there in the heart of Manhattan. I'm excited about this. We're going to have some great panels. You're going to be uh, moderating a terrific media roundtable that's going to include the likes of Sports Illustrated Executive Editor John Wartime, who's been on this show. Elsie uh, Granderson is hopefully going to join us, possibly Christine Brennan from USA Today. So uh, it's going to be a really good event. We'll talk social media at the event. We're even going to have one of the top Hollywood publicists there who's going to break down a crisis PR situation he's had to deal with with one of his high-profile Hollywood uh, celebrity-type clients. So uh, I'm looking forward to the networking and the content, and then hopefully we can uh, grow this event into an annual occasion. Yeah, I think it's, a, I think it's a, a great event, and it's an important thing because as we've had social media change and we've had the different um, access points between the media, I mean, first of all, the media, there's a, there's a, there's a million different access points in a way, uh, and as a result, it has become, I think, more and more difficult for professional organizations, for uh, agents, for athletes to figure out, okay, so who am I talking to and what are they looking for and where, how do we develop uh, a level of trust because it's all of the, the guardrails have essentially been removed. So how do we work in this in this new arena? And and those questions exist on both sides of the equation. So to have the opportunity to bring people from both sides uh, to get together to talk frankly about uh, their questions, their concerns, their discoveries, their their perspectives, uh, I believe it, it'll be incredibly informative uh, and uh, uh, honestly groundbreaking uh, to be able to because this never happened. No, nobody ever sits down from both sides of the fence and trades, uh, uh, I don't know if it's secrets, but certainly game plans and perspectives. Uh, and this is going to give both sides an opportunity to learn a lot about the other. And maybe, uh, ideally, the idea is that we can then uh, work together in a much more effective, compatible way. If you want to follow the Sports PR Summit on Twitter, just go to at Sports PR Summit. If you want more information about the event, uh, you can go on to everythingisontherecord.com, and we've got uh, a page on our website detailing all of the guest speakers and the time and date and everything else you need to know about the Sports PR Summit. All right, I know a lot of people listening to this want to hear about the NBA. You're an expert on the NBA. First thing I thought about when – I wanted to have you on is, boy, what a thud for the NBA trade deadline. Um, 
How much does the new collective bargaining agreement have to do with the lack of activity that we saw at this recent NBA trade deadline? Well, the, the, the big deal, I think if we want to really look at, at trades, we have to look at the fact that the James Harden trade happened last summer and the Rudy Gay happened, uh, Rudy Gay trade to Toronto happened uh, not on the trade deadline, but prior to it. I think we need to lump those in. Uh, so it, 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 the last second deal didn't happen, but, but the, the cost uh, of making a mistake and the value of draft picks has moved the most uh, valuable time to make deals from the February trade deadline, I believe, to around draft time. Uh, after, after the lottery, uh, that, uh, and uh, as the, the draft unfolds and you sort of know where players are going to sit, that's the opportunity because then you're, you're not trading a blind first-round pick after the lottery, you at least know where it's picking, and you can uh, have a better sense of what player might be available at that pick. And then as it unfolds, you literally know, okay, this is who is available. And so a lot of teams are setting up deals to be made depending on what happens uh, as draft night uh, un- unfolds. I, uh, but, but to answer the question, the uh, – the, New collective bargaining agreement has had a, um, a tremendous impact, and it certainly had an impact. Uh, it's, it's the reason that this has shifted. Number one, because the opportunity to get uh, talent at potentially below market value because of the rookie salary scale has made draft picks more valuable than ever uh, because you, you may get a guy who can start or uh, star or certainly be in your rotation. Damian Lillard. Perfect example. Uh, you know, that's, that's a great get for, for, for Portland. Uh, and so the, the, but the biggest issue that I found and the reason that you saw teams making deals at the trade deadline to, to basically give, I mean, the Golden State Warriors gave away two players. It was, it was the first time I can recall where it, it was announced that they had traded Charles Jenkins and Jeremy Tyler for, um, for things to be – it wasn't even players to be named. It was like <laughs> items to be named, draft picks to be named. I mean, it was, they, they didn't put any value on what was coming back because it was, they were right at the cusp of the luxury tax, and they wanted to make sure that they got under. So – I'm sure they, they, they checked with everybody to see if they could, they could make a deal. And basically then they just found homes for two of those players that made sure that they were going to be under the luxury tax. Now, the reason that it was so important uh, this year to them to get under the luxury tax is because they were close enough to do it. And the, while the, over the next couple of years, it hasn't begun yet, but as this collective bargaining agreement continues, each year the penalty, the tax, is going to increase by 50 cent margin. So, for example, rather than dollar for dollar, where if you are a million over the luxury tax, you have to pay a million in tax, uh, the subsequent year it's a dollar fifty for every dollar. That means now you're paying a million and a half. And that continues to go up uh, to where you're paying. Uh, 
you, for every million over, you'll be paying two and a half million in tax. Add to that the repeater tax, and this is the one, this is what really has teams terrified, is that if you are a taxpayer in three out of four years, then the tax that you pay, you add a dollar on top of whatever the tax is that you're paying uh, subsequently in that fourth uh, in that fourth year, and so people, when anytime they have an opportunity to get under and stay under the tax, they're going to do that because you look at like the Miami Heat right now. The Miami Heat, as a result of having those big three, have no choice but they will be paying the tax next after next season because they're they're over the tax and they're over the tax to stay and, and unless they trade one of the big three uh Chris Bosch, Dwayne Wade or LeBron James they they have literally no chance of getting under that repeater tax and so you're talking about paying and and they're not just a little bit over you're talking about paying an additional 10 to 15 million dollars on top of the tax that you are already paying just because it, I mean, it, it, it can, it, it can become incredibly expensive in a hurry. And so this is operating very much like a hard cap at this point. No owner wants to, if, if their, if their general manager comes to them and says, listen, we need to go into the tax this year, that owner is going to want to know, okay, so how are you getting me back out of it? next year. And if you don't have an answer, then chances are that owner is not going to allow you to make the move. It's going to take you into the past. Rick Buecher is joining me. Find him on Twitter at Rick Buecher. Yeah, it's interesting. If you go back to the last collective bargaining agreement, two of the biggest, I guess, deal points, you know, one is uh, making the league more competitive, making it Mm -hmm. so that there aren't super teams, more parity. You look at the Mm -hmm. NFL where the Green Bay Packers in a small market can compete with the New York Giants in a big market. The other part was revenue sharing. So you've got the Lakers and the Knicks who bring in enormous amounts of money from media rights deals, and then you've got San Antonio, Sacramento, Milwaukee, Portland that can't command that kind of money. So the revenue sharing was also important. You look five years down the road in the NBA, are we going to see super teams anymore? Will the Lakers and the Heat as they exist today be able to exist financially five years from now? I would say probably not. The model that everyone is expecting is that uh, teams will have a couple of players, two, maybe three, but uh, the three would have to be, uh, they couldn't be three max contracts. There'll be two guys on max contracts. And then the rest will be near minimum deals or very limited deals. And so you'll see a lot of movement among those smaller pieces, uh, a little bit like, uh, like the NFL. Uh, and, but, but people locked in to a couple of superstars that will be more difficult to move. Now, the interesting thing is that they're shortening the contracts. And so, you know, the, you're going to have to re-up guys, and there may be some mobility that way. But it, to me, it's interesting because the NBA, I believe, finds itself at cross-purposes. The whole idea of revenue sharing, the whole idea of the way they structured the, the super luxury tax is at least what they're saying 
is the reason they did all that is to create parity, to allow the Milwaukee's and the Portland's uh, and the Sacramento's to compete with the Lakers and the Knicks and the teams that have such huge local TV deals and such huge uh, revenue from their markets that they are less concerned about going into the tax or uh, spending money. And But the reality is that the NBA is not built like the NFL, where Green Bay can be a champion and it doesn't impact your Super Bowl ratings. It doesn't impact who tunes in. It doesn't impact your merchandise sales. The, the size of the market in the NFL, the NFL is truly a, a conglomerate. And whereas the NBA to me is more like Major League Baseball, where the markets that are in the playoffs at the end of the year, the markets that are in the World Series or the NBA Finals, do have a huge impact on your viewership. People are not going to tune in to watch seven games of San Antonio and Detroit, no matter how big they are. The people in L.A. and New York, Boston, they just don't care. You're not, you don't, you're not going to get those mainstream numbers like you, like you will with you know, people in L.A. or San Francisco or, uh, uh, or Miami. The Green Bay Packers are playing the New England Patriots. People are going to tune in. We want to see Aaron Rodgers versus Tom Brady. That doesn't exist in the NBA. So you're trying to create parity with a league that is better served, much like baseball, when you have the bigger markets that are involved at the end of the year. And so it's my contention that when you put the rules in place that benefits the larger markets for the NBA, you're doing what's best for the league. That parity sounds good. It sounds it sounds good to the Milwaukee Buck fan who is frustrated that his team has never been able to compete for a title. And I would argue that you know what, even with the parity, you're probably still not competing for a title. You might you know once in a blue moon get a team like that, the port you know a Portland jumping up and doing it or an Oklahoma City. But by and large, those are always going to be the exception rather than the rule. And trying to create a uh, a playing field where it it encourages that. I looking at the at the ratings and the interest in the NBA Finals. I don't know that you're benefiting yourself. And to add to all that, when you look at all the interest that was generated by the summer of 2010 when you had this great cavalcade of superstars who were available to go to a variety of teams that were able to clear tax space and the interest that generated. I mean, I, I remember distinctly, we're, we're talking NBA in July. It was a daily subject. And I'm thinking, this has never happened before. This is not – in July and August, NBA was the lead story. That had never happened before. And the only reason that it happened was because you had these major markets with the wherewithal to go after superstar players. And essentially, the way this collective bargaining agreement is being structured, it is uh, severely undermining the chance of having 
another summer of 2010. And uh, looking at how much that benefited the league, I can't see how that's a good thing. Just a few minutes left with Rick Buecher. Find him on Twitter, at Rick Buecher. All right, some quick-hitting questions for you. Does Derrick Rose play this season, or will we not see him in a Bulls uniform until next season? I would not expect to see him this season because uh, it's not that he's not practicing. It's not that he doesn't look fantastic. But he and his advisors are looking at uh, the long term, where he is age-wise, and the fact that if 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 not playing now, I mean, part of it is just the torque. It's you're going to come back and play. You're going to go from practicing to regular season. You're going to get maybe 10, 15 games of regular season play, and now you're in the playoffs. And now the level of play goes to another level. Is his body going to be fully conditioned to handle that, to protect his knee in playoff games? And we know how Derek plays. I mean, it's not Derek. Derek's not going to go. He's, he's not going to go three-quarter speed to protect his knee. When he gets back, he's going to go all out. It's it's the only way he knows how to play. Uh, for his size and position, it's really the only way he can play if he wants to have the impact that he seeks to have. So do you go on that timeline for a Bulls team that at face value is still a long shot to win a title? Or do you say, you know what, let's wait. Let's give him another summer. Let's give the, those ligaments inside that knee yet another, another uh, number of months to strengthen. And then let's bring him back. Let's have him go through a normal training camp. Let's have him go through a normal exhibition season. Let's have him come back when we don't have to wonder if he can play back-to-back, so be on a minute limit, or he doesn't have to immediately ratchet up his play from one level to the next to the next in a matter of games because, after all, this was the youngest player ever to win MVP, and it was only two years ago. Do we really want to jeopardize all of that just to see him come back and play at the end of the season because he's been practicing and it looks like he might he might be capable of handling that. Yeah, I hope that's what happens. I hope we don't see him until next season because I agree with you that they need to take a long-term approach. But you know how this goes, Brian, you know how this goes. I mean, we look at ages. What are the, how quickly were the Redskins saying, hey, Robert Griffin could be back to begin next season? I right. Mean, it, the and look at Adrian Peterson. Exactly. Teams don't, they do not, what they're trying to do is they're trying to sell tickets and luxury suites and merchandise. So I get why the Bulls would continue to dangle out there that he's going to be back or he looks good or allow those whispers because it gives the team hope that he's going to come back. I mean, literally, that now they feel that they're playing for something. They're playing to hold serve until Derek gets back. You want that because you're, you're selling. I mean, that's what you're selling to your fans. You want your fans to, uh, if you know, we're, we're selling, uh, we're selling playoff tickets. Um, you know, make sure you renew your season tickets so that you are first in line for playoff tickets. And uh, yeah, Derek, Derek practiced today, and you know, things are looking good. I mean, if you don't think that that helps sell those playoff tickets, uh, you're 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 mistaken. 
So I understand why they do it, but those around there, and, and particularly people in the media who should not have a vested interest, to be the one saying, you know what, I, at least maybe not saying it, but understanding that if Derrick Rose is going to take a business approach to this and say, but I need to do what's best for me physically for the long term, that no one should ever, ever, ever question that with uh, a guy whose work ethic is as uh, pristine and unquestioned as a guy like Derek Rose. Well, and I guess I'll disagree with you a little bit. Uh, the Bulls have one of the, the highest season ticket bases in the NBA. They're going to sell their playoff tickets no matter what, whether Derrick Rose plays or he doesn't play. So it's not like, you know, this is a market where you're trying to make that push for playoff tickets. The Bulls, if they get to the playoffs, they're going to sell out. They've sold out all their games for many, many years. Even after Michael Jordan retired, they had a good enough season ticket base that it was one of the strongest in the NBA. If yeah, you look but, at their renewals. But- but Brian, they anticipated that, and they made people they made people re-up for a certain number of years when they knew Jordan was going away to cover themselves. They knew that they they had it sold out to bridge to bridge that gap. And you're right. I mean, certainly they'll sell out the they'll, they'll sell out the uh, uh, they'll still sell out the arena, but you know there there becomes ancillary things in terms of sponsorship, in terms of well, you know, um, uh, specific endorsements that are connected with Derek in terms of what they're able to make, that those things may not be available as a result. And as long as they can sort of hang hang the, the possibility of Derek being there, um, look, it's it, just for everybody concerned, it's, it's dangling the possibility which is more attractive and is going to help you as opposed to just definitively saying, no, he's not going to come back. I mean, that, that, that to me has a damper because I don't think anybody looks at the Bulls and says they can make a title run without Derrick Rose. I agree with you. I will say this. I think Adidas has a lot more invested and at stake with Derrick Rose and him coming back sooner than later uh, than the Chicago Bulls do. Adidas is paying him a ton of money. He's not selling as many shoes. He's still selling a lot of shoes, but not nearly as many because he's not out on the court every night, and he's yeah, not as top of mind. But that said, Adidas's contract with Derek runs much longer than his contract with the Chicago Bulls. So I dare say that in one respect, and I've been told that Adidas is uh, Adidas is well aware of how his camp is approaching this. And that because that they have that long-term deal with him, I mean, just imagine, just imagine. So he comes back, and yes, it sells, it sells, to, it sells shoes this spring. But then he retweaks the knee, or he's not the same. And Adidas is on the hook for the next six years. At the at the vast, at the, I mean, he's he, to my knowledge, has the most. Um, most lucrative shoe deal ever, more lucrative than anything LeBron James has signed. Does Adidas want to roll the dice on his long-term excellence to get him back to sell shoes this spring? That's the question. As a total side note, look at Adidas. They've got a ton of money wrapped up into Derrick Rose and RG3. 
both yeah. with major knee yeah. injuries. That, that's yeah. a tough, tough uh, that's just tough luck for, for Adidas. Yep. I think both of those guys will come back and be fine. But, boy, you're a little nervous if you're them right now. No question about it. No question about it. But, you know, I mean, you look at an Adrian Peterson, and I look at at least what I've been told with Derrick Rose, and, and, you know, Adrian Peterson's return and how he's played sort of supports it, is that the advances made when it comes to uh, ACL injuries and the the technique and the training more than anything. Uh, I'm told that Derrick Rose, while he worked hard before and did everything that he was asked, that now because of the knee, he has been training in ways that he simply had not before. And it's amplified his game and his athleticism. And, it's, you know, I just think about how athletic and the amazing things he did before. And somebody's telling me he could come back and actually be stronger and faster than that. I'm like, I can't wait to see that. Two more topics for you. Uh, the NBA's version of Sybil, Dwight Howard. You have mm-hmm. interviewed him many times. Is he going to be in L.A. next year? Do you think he goes to another market? Try and predict what Dwight Howard's going to do this summer. Honestly, I feel for the rehabilitation of his uh, his image, and the fact that there is an additional year uh, that he can uh, receive in his contract by staying in L.A., I would still I still feel as if the odds are, uh, the great odds are, that he will re-sign in L.A. But I can tell you that it's not a foregone conclusion because there is a matter of weighing all that has happened and what's the makeup of the team going to be, who's going to coach it, what's his relationship uh, with Steve Nash and Kobe Bryant going to be, that there's, there's, you know, there's a point at where you have the finance and you have, I got to re I got to, you know, redo my image and rebuild my image. And then there's like, I have to live this existence on a daily basis. And, you know, he's been, he's been, whether you blame him or not, He's been the whipping boy to a certain extent in L.A., and it can be very attractive when the Houston Rockets or uh, uh, the Houston Rockets, really, the Dallas Mavericks are saying, hey, look, come here, start over. We're going we're gonna to make it right. And this is what we can do where it's going to be about you, and we're going to put you in your comfort zone as opposed to what's happened to you in L.A., that can be a very enticing offer. Um, I, I don't know that it wins the day at the end, but you know, Dwight has demonstrated more than a couple times that trying to anticipate what he's going to do based on the parameters. I mean, it made absolutely no sense for him to opt into his contract, into the final year of his contract in Orlando, uh, and yet he did. So that leaves the possibility open that – depending on who's in his year last and what he feels on a particular day, we can, we can, I can talk to all the people who are advising him. I can talk to him and I can feel like I know what's going to happen and what he's going to do. And there's that, uh, that little integer there that uh, it could, it could all turn uh, on a dime. So, but I, as of right now, I would anticipate, Back in LA. Yeah, he's certainly a tough guy to predict. Last question for you. Uh, you're a no-cal guy. Is there any way that the Kings 
stay in Sacramento? Can Kevin Johnson work some magic and keep them there? Or do you think it's a foregone conclusion that the Kings will be playing in Seattle next year? You know, I really wish that uh, I could I, – I, I know that the reporting out of Sacramento has been um, – I don't know if optimistic, but but insistent that there's a very real chance that uh, Kevin Johnson, the mayor, can pull something off. And I just, when I talk to people in Seattle, when I talk to people, the, the people that I know uh, who are connected to the uh, money guys that are looking to potentially buy the team and keep it in Sacramento, they've just been very skeptical that they can pull something off. Uh, at, 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 at this late of an hour, uh, and that the more than anything that the rest of the owners in the league are going to dictate to the Maloofs, uh, you know, one of their fellow owners, what they have to do, and or that they would do it out of sentiment to stay in Sacramento as opposed to going to Seattle. So. You know, everything that I've heard right up until, you know, right, we're a couple of days away from the deadline. Uh, everything that I'm hearing is even, even on the side of the guys who would keep it in Sacramento is, is skepticism that they're going to be able to put something together in time that is going to win the day. So I can't say that it's definitive, but I, it just seems to be an incredible long shot and it would defy everything that, that has happened in the NBA previously if the Kings end up staying in Sacramento. Yeah, it's interesting. $525 million, which is the reported sales price, would be an all-time record for an NBA franchise. I think they're somewhat worth that price in Seattle. They're definitely yes. not worth that price in yes. Sacramento. That's exactly right. And and when you look at guys like Mark Mastroff, uh, the head of 24-Hour Fitness, and or the founder of 24-Hour Fitness, and Ron Burkle, who's uh, uh, I think a billionaire or, or, or close to those guys did not make their fortune by making emotional decisions or by investing in bad deals. They're going to look at this as a business venture. And if they look at it and say, this is the price to keep it in Sacramento and I can't make my money back doing it, they're not, it, it would defy their previous history as businessmen to do it. Yeah, I agree with you. That's why I, I think they're they're pretty much gone to Seattle. But we'll see. You know, I tip my hat to Kevin Johnson. He's tried everything he can to make it work there in Sacramento. I just don't think that they're going to be able to rally at the at the end. Well, keep in mind, I mean – Kevin Johnson is the mayor of Sacramento, and I would assume that he wants to continue to be the mayor of Sacramento if he were to not look as if he had done everything possible to keep the Kings there. Uh, I don't know that that would do a whole lot for his reelection uh, uh, possibility. So Kevin Johnson has a vested interest. This is what this is what really intrigues me because. Uh, you know the, the 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 some reporters and people reporting fans in Sacramento look at the national media of of which they consider uh, myself and others, and they look at the report. Daring Ravel from ESPN, the business writer, and they look at our reports, and it's like 
you don't understand us. You're against us. Why do you hate the Kings? And it's like, we, we're reporting without a vested interest. It does nothing for me, whether they stay in Sacramento or they go to Seattle. It has no impact on me whatsoever. And in the meantime, they're telling me all the things that Kevin Johnson is saying and doing and businessmen in Sacramento are promising. And I'm thinking, they have a vested interest. Right. They, they have a reason to say what they're saying. So why? I mean, let's just look a little deeper. I'm not, I'm not the enemy. And I don't have, if you're looking for objectivity here, the people that would, would benefit greatly from the Kings staying in Sacramento are probably not the epitome of objectivity at this point. All right, let's throw out a few plugs. First, your Twitter, at Rick Bucher, R-I-C-B-U-C-H-E-R. If people want to listen to you on 95.7, the game in the Bay Area, uh, what are some ways people can do that besides Uh, turning it on in their car if they're in the Bay Area, but around the country? How can people listen? Well, certainly there you can. Uh, there's an app for your smartphone, uh, 957thegame.com. Uh, you can go to that and uh, and or or go to uh, go to apps and put and, and plug that in to the search, and it'll come up. Uh, so you'll be able to you'll, you'll be able to stream the show uh, through the app. And there's um, and then we also have uh, through iTunes uh, and through the website uh, 957thegame.com. Uh, you can, uh, we have uh, segments that are there that you can also uh, listen to, click on and listen to. And we're going to, hopefully very soon, we will have on iTunes where you you will be able to listen uh, and download the entire show uh, to your uh, listening device, tablet, whatever it may be. We don't don't have that yet, but there's a a variety of ways uh, to do that. And then... um, Ah, there's, uh, well, the best thing is just to follow my Twitter handle and that will, uh, you will see links there to my TV work with NBC and Comcast and, uh, those videos, uh, provide, uh, news and information on uh, teams, uh, across the league. Yeah. I'll tell you, technology is an interesting thing because, uh, I can listen to you in my car in Portland, Oregon, by bringing up the 95.7 The Game app. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I've got a, a new fancy car, so I can wirelessly just click on the app on my iPhone, right. and then there it comes. You in the Bay Area from uh, 3 to 7 Pacific time, right? Uh, 3 to 7 Pacific in the in the Bay Area. And I just had uh, – it's funny because I just had somebody from Memphis who uh, texted me and said, "Hey, your your uh, your show, your San Francisco show sounds great." And that seemed to be like a a, a a a threshold moment where I have people across the country who are able to listen to the show um, without actually being in the Bay Area. No, it's fantastic. And then our partnership, everything is on the record. You can find more about us at everythingisontherecord.com or on Twitter at E-I-O-T-R, the Sports PR Summit on Twitter at Sports PR Summit. Last thing, you know, I know a lot of changes for you in the last few months, but the thing that I'm the happiest for you about, in addition to, you know, our partnership is you're the captain of your ship now. You're getting to spend more time with your family. You're there. I know you're involved with your, your two children and uh, their activities. So uh, I think that's really, really great. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny, uh, Brian, when, when you make a shift like this, I, I, I was careful to sit down and think about my motives. And uh, one of the motives, one of the strong motives for me was that, uh, one, uh, I'm, I'm always willing to bet on myself. And I wanted the opportunity to explore and cultivate uh, any and all opportunities uh, that, that might come my way. And that, and that really had come to a point with ESPN where it was limited. It was either for ESPN or it was for not. And, uh, and, and, and the, you know, one of the other strong motives was in being the captain of my own ship that my kids are uh, eight and nine right now. I feel like, you know, the next six, seven years are going to be very formative for them. And I didn't want to be, uh, I didn't want to be an absentee father. I wanted to be able to look at them as they uh, enter high school or go off to college and feel as if, uh, you know what, I I cultivated EITOR. I cultivated uh, you know, my deal with NBC and a radio show, and I cultivated uh, these two little human beings that uh, that carry my last name. Well, and that's the most important thing. We wear a lot of hats. I have an eight-year-old daughter, as you know, and being dad is the most important hat that we wear. So, no uh, you know, I think we have a good perspective on things, and uh, it's exciting to watch you with all the things that you're involved in. Rick, thank you so much for taking the time. That's an hour of goodness <laughs> and information that uh, I know the audience appreciates. Glad to be with you, Brian. Thanks. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter, twitter.com slash SBRadio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bull Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. We're back. Thanks for taking the time to join us on Sports Business Radio this week. Thank you to Rick Buecher. Again, find him on Twitter at Rick, R-I-C, Buecher, B-U-C-H-E-R, at Rick Buecher. Great follow on Twitter. Lots of terrific insights from him. A few other plugs. Follow Everything is on the Record by going to everythingisontherecord.com. That's our media and social media training partnership, working with lots of professional and college sports teams, also work with corporations. Everything is on the record.com. You can follow us on Twitter at E-I-O-T-R. Everything is on the record, E-I-O-T-R on Twitter. The Sports PR Summit, if you're interested in uh, attending that event or just seeing what's going on there, follow us on Twitter at Sports PR Summit, at Sports PR Summit. A lot of thank yous on the show again, Rick Buecher. Thank you for joining us this week. Our show staff, 
Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, and Doug Zanger. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just click on the iTunes icon on the front page of sportsbusinessradio.com to have our show podcast downloaded to your iTunes every week. We'd love it if you post a review of our show on iTunes. You can also find the podcast online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Again, a reminder to follow me on Twitter at SB Radio, at SB Radio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio.